This is the People, Planet, Prosperity podcast, a project of Canada Action to bring you long-form, in-depth discussion from a positive, fact-based, and non-partisan perspective about our vital natural resource sector. Hi, I'm Cody Battershall. And I'm Lynn Exner. Today we are going to talk about something we've all been hearing a lot about in the news going back now many years, a decade, longer even. And that is, uh, it's a really important topic. It's Indigenous involvement in natural resources across Canada. We're going to address some of the misconceptions, some of the successes, and some of the key policies that have impacted both communities and resource development projects in uh, the country. If you just read the news, you would probably think that most Indigenous groups are against natural resource projects. In reality, far from being opposed... The majority of Indigenous communities from every province and territory in Canada have chosen to engage, ensuring they can benefit economically while safeguarding the ability of future generations to enjoy the land and uh, traditional way of life. As a result, hundreds of Indigenous nations and communities have entered into agreements and partnerships to develop oil and gas uh, resources, mining, forestry, and other projects uh, across the country. And uh, this is something that we need to jump into a little bit more. Absolutely, Cody. So, you know, this is a topic that really became front and center, I think, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So when I joined you at Canada Action, a lot of media was on Trans Mountain Pipeline. A lot of the media focused on the fact that it was against Indigenous rights. And so that was where this was a question that kept coming up as, you know, you and I were traveling across the country talking about effectively pipeline politics at the time. One of the most important questions to Canadians was that they were concerned that uh, from their understanding, this was an infringement on upon Indigenous rights. Now, in Canada, we've worked really hard to try to repair some of the uh, challenges of the past in terms of engaging First Nations in resource development, as well as ensuring that they are participating as not only partners, but equity um, people. So that was really important. So what surprised me, I think, when we were talking about TMX was that most Canadians didn't understand really the extent of the support for these projects that things like Trans Mountain Pipeline had. And, and Trans Mountain is, is really interesting because the project itself has been in some sort of regulatory review and construction now for like over a decade, uh, approaching a decade anyways. And in the consultation process, there was approximately 129 Indigenous First Nations communities that were a part of that process. And it was found that 120 of the 129 either supported Trans Mountain expansion or did not oppose it. And that's the kind of statistic that maybe isn't uh, discussed as much in the news media. It's maybe not as, you know, front and center and top of mind for Canadians across the country. So it's it's really interesting about some of the misconceptions. And it's actually really interesting when we deep dive into the reality of, you know, you look at all of the Indigenous communities on the actual route, and there's something like, you know, 50 plus mutual benefit agreements signed. There's been root changes to respect and to work with Indigenous communities. There's been uh, a really uh, a long, in-depth process now. And the vast, vast, vast majority of these communities through their leadership and through their community members are supportive of Trans Mountain. And that's one example, but something that's been really top of mind for the last several years now. 
Absolutely, Cody. And and I bring up Trans Mountain and we talk about that because that's probably the most widespread understood case across Canada. Although, of course, this is not just something that happens in oil and gas. This is true of almost all resource spaces. But a couple of things that this comes to mind is that there are some differences with different First Nations. I mean, there's over 600 different First Nations and over 200 different First Nations in British Columbia alone. And so uh, one of the pieces in terms of a large linear project like Trans mountain is that you have so many First Nations along that route or who are impacted. And so for the public, you might be seeing a difference between, for example, the majority of those opposed to that particular project were urban uh, centered spaces. And they have very good reasons for their own nation for wanting to be for or against. And if you're in that one nation, that may, makes perfect sense. If you're in Vancouver and you can have more value from your land by doing, you know, other kinds of development rather than having a pipeline. Okay. But for the majority of those First Nations, as we know, most bands are in rural and remote areas. And the opportunities for those um, First Nations are very limited. And so we want to hear more from them, but we don't always do that. Another thing I think it's important is that when we're looking at, you might have a nation or two that are opposed to this. And again, fully within the rights to do that. But what we often don't see is sort of the population base. You talked mm. about the numbers of First Nations, but there's also just sort of the population, which I think is important. So there would have been in those bands that were against Trans Mountain Pipeline, as another example, their population might have been in total about 5,000, maybe 6,000 uh, members. Very important, and it's important to consult with them. But there's probably 100,000 First Nations members on the nations that would stand to benefit from something like that. So I think it's important to get that balance. And then finally, I think the biggest piece that came out of Trans Mountain is that when there was that delay for the government to do the duty to consult, mm -hmm. this is key for Indigenous resources and resource development in Canada, regardless of what industry you're in. Finally, to the benefit of everyone, really, is that we are recognizing that we do need to be consulting with First Nations on their land. And that is terrific. I think it's important to note that the duty to consult lies with the crown, meaning with the government. I think a lot of people misunderstood and thought that it was industry, that it was the proponent, that it was in that case, you know, um, uh, Kinder Morgan and then afterward, you know, TransCanada that had not done their job. And it wasn't industry. Industry has actually done a tremendous uh, job and they've spent years and years in consultation and in creating those benefits agreements. And it was the government that said, we need to do a better job of consulting. And then the other part that goes with that is that that actually set up a really important precedent to benefit Indigenous um, nations as they negotiate benefit agreements for all different kinds of resources. So it set that up. But we'll, as we'll talk about later, this is not a veto, right? This is a duty to consult is not the same thing as one nation can stop an entire project. So a lot of really important concepts came out of the Trans Mountain uh, project itself in terms of advancing Indigenous rights, but also understanding the complexity of these issues. Absolutely. And, you know, today Trans Mountain is well under construction. There's something like, I think, 8,000 people working on the project, including I think it's more than a thousand workers right now that are that are indigenous and a really, really important project for the country, because when we maximize the value of our resources, that is just simply the smart thing to do. And it funds 
and it helps all Canadians realize the highest possible quality of life and economic benefits, including for those benefit agreements signed with those Indigenous communities and for the job opportunities, the training opportunities, and the uh, the infrastructure development, and so on and so forth. You also mentioned TransCanada, and I thought that's that's it's an interesting segue when we talk about TransCanada, TC Energy now, and Coastal GasLink. Coastal GasLink has uh, been in the news. You know, Trans Mountain, it's always been a question of some nations opposing the projects and a potentially a lack of balance in the reporting or in the perception or in the understanding of the issue, because it's always been a strong, overwhelming majority in support. But with, with Coastal GasLink, from the outset, it was, you know, this is a natural gas pipeline to the LNG Canada project. And from the outset with Coastal GasLink, all 20 Indigenous communities along the route, through their elected leadership, supported the project. Yet, we saw a lot of news, a lot of media, a lot of protest about this project, again, for Indigenous rights, respecting Indigenous communities. And I don't even know how, how that's possible, to be honest, but maybe you can give us a little bit more insight into sort of the hereditary chiefs versus the elected chiefs, the Indian Act. There's some other things going on with Coastal GasLink that I think maybe got distorted a little bit in the, in the, in the news coverage or in the media coverage over the last couple of years. Absolutely, Cody. And I think, uh, you know, our listeners will remember that we actually had national railway blockades that were very disruptive. Um, and you had different First Nations from across the country taking different stances in support of Wet'suwet'en. But the question there for me was always, you know, which of the Wet'suwet'en are you supporting? Because there was a large portion of that nation that were in favor of the project and a large portion that were opposed, which you'll find with any resource project or even things like building a bridge or an overpass in a city, you will have some people in favor and some yes. opposed. And the job of government, whether it be a First Nations uh, government, whether it be local, provincial or federal, is to try to balance those two sides and then come down with what's going to be most beneficial. So CGL was unique for sure. And that, you know, the approach was certainly a lot different, starting with the councils and including them at the outset. Um, and so there was some progress that was made there. But a lot of the conversation came down to the difference between hereditary chiefs and elected chiefs. And really, I think the most important point there is that this was a question less so about the project in many ways and more about who gets to give consent, right? Who is in charge? And uh, because the elected council in many ways is affiliated with the Indian Act, which is a deeply flawed historically and even still now uh, document that is a it is a big part of of how we you know do law in Canada there was some concerns around that and so can you choose one or the other I will say that in many First Nations they have come up with their own decision on how they give consent to a project and so there will be some consensus within a First Nation between hereditary chiefs and elected chiefs and there's a lot of nations that have spoken out. In this case, there was some disparity between those two. And so while it was yes about the project and many groups made it about natural gas and fossil fuels, I think ultimately one of the bigger pieces of that was having an understanding of how governance is determined on First Nations. Is it through the Indian Act and therefore elected council, or is it through hereditary chiefs? And most of the time, it's going to be a combination of the two, because it is still the members of that nation that are democratically electing their chiefs 
as well as respecting the traditional um, values and the traditional leadership of hereditary chiefs. So it shouldn't be an either or. I think ultimately we want these to be decisions that are determined by those First Nations. And that's far easily done when we don't have the eyes of the nation, all the pressures of so many other people imposing their own needs onto that community. That really complicated things. Well, and you said a couple things there that really struck me, Lynn, and that's first and foremost, you know, we were seeing people from all over North America, potentially the world, traveling to Canada to try to join in protests. And then when you would talk to them, they had a very, very, very surface level understanding of the issues. People thinking that the natural gas pipeline was an oil pipeline, people thinking all sorts of different things. And were those people traveling to join in the protests really focused on the core issues of Indigenous consultation, consent, communities, economic development, partnerships, or were there other things at play? And we need to make sure we keep uh, uh, a clear focus on, on the issues at hand. Also, it is not easy nowadays to build anything. You can't build a condo tower. You can't build a bridge. You can't actually build hydroelectric lines without opposition. You can't build wind farms in hundreds of municipalities across North America without opposition. And you, we know you can't build pipelines easily. So there is a lot of that opposition to a lot of different types of large infrastructure projects. And we need to continue to get back to consensus and how we move forward, how we consult, how we respect, how we listen to all, and then move forward for the betterment of society or, or what's best for everyone. And so just a couple more interesting points there. You know, Coastal Gas Link, Trans Mountain, very interesting. Another thing that's been talked about a lot is UNDRIP. And in Canada, that's been uh, Bill C-15. Tell us more about Undriplin. Sure. Well, going back to what you were saying just a, a couple of seconds ago, there is a lot of sometimes uh, different pieces of the puzzle kind of come together. Ultimately, the conversation for me that's important here is how do we advance Indigenous rights? And so the reason pipelines often get conflated with that is because they're large linear projects. Sometimes they're going over large different territories. There are a lot of different projects, for example, in mining and yeah. forestry examples uh, where you're only dealing with maybe one or two First Nations. And yeah. so it's really been amazing to see the development we've had there. Yeah. And so the UNDRIP is the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of, Independ of Indigenous Peoples. And so that is uh, a series of principles and rights that we want to make sure that we are defending worldwide. And what's unique in that is that actually Canada, unique almost in the entire world, maybe alongside New Zealand, has actually got entrenched in our Charter of Rights, Section 35, unique rights for Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen anywhere else. So Canada actually has set the gold standard for inclusivity of Indigenous rights. And that's what we go back to, again, Trans Mountain Pipeline and that duty to consult. It is legally enforced here. Mm -hmm. So we're already setting the standard there. And there are nations all around the world that are trying to understand how we've done such a good job of engaging our Indigenous communities as equal partners. And, and largely, the successes there have been with industry. Well, some on the outside might look in and like or dislike the specific project that's being discussed or reviewed. But the reality is we do have, according to what you're saying and what we've experienced, a world-leading regulatory process now to consult, to uh, work with, and to make sure that we are respecting uh, those Indigenous communities. 
it is world leading and yet still very flawed, right? Very and so flawed. we're always working on There's progress. There's so much work to be done still. Towards progress. Yes. But, so let's talk about C15. So this is an UNDRIP for principles. And, and the, they were never intended to be just sort of cut and paste on top of any government. They were designed to be worked into your government laws so that you are making sure that these rights, these universal rights are being respected. And so UNDRIP is a bill that's been put forward and has actually been passed now on C15. And there's two real pieces that come up on that. One of them is something that you might hear referred to as FPIC, which is free prior and informed consent. Mm. So this is important because it tries to put into law that First Nations need to have been able to give free prior informed consent. And without getting into too far uh, on that one, this goes back again to the question we just discussed with CGLs, who gives consent? And so it's hard to say that you've given free prior and informed consent if we haven't established, is that consent from the elected council? Is that is consent from the hereditary chiefs? Is that unanimous consent? Which, let's be clear, you don't need unanimous consent. We can elect governments in this country with about 35% of the vote. You can change our entire constitution. You need 60% in favor to change our, our charter. So to have unanimous consent from a First Nation or from all First Nations is an untenable bar that is not expected anywhere else in legal precedent. So that's worth establishing. So when we talk about free prior and informed consent, we just were looking for clarity on what that means. And why, why is that important? It's important to industry, it's important to government, and it's important to First Nations. Yes. Because without that clarity, what happens is investors that are looking at perhaps saying, oh, I want to go to your First Nation, I want to do a project with you, we can have a mutual benefits agreement, you can be an equity partner and join us together at the very outset instead of even just coming in and getting some royalties or something like that, actually be a participant or as we look in TMX, you know, to actually have indigenous ownership. So these are some of the pieces that are there. That goes to another principle of UNDRIP, which is that of economic sovereignty and economic development. Mm. So often, Cody, I feel like what we talk about when with regards to indigenous rights is the right to say no yes. to a project. And that is important. The right to say no does matter. But what I feel is getting left behind so often in this discussion is the right to say yes oh, to so using important. your resources. Yeah, Lynn, that's so important. The right to say yes. I don't know if a lot of people often think about it like that, but you really just framed that for us, I think in a in a really clear way, because you mentioned Trans Mountain, there's several groups now that are seeking ownership of that pipeline. And that is economic development for those communities. And that is spinoff. And that is investment. And that is a legacy for future generations. And having that project move forward to where it is, is going to even allow those groups to own it one day. So the right to say yes is really important. There are a couple other examples. You know, we've heard about the Micmac uh, lobster. We've heard about the blueberry uh, recently. What can you tell us about some of these other recent examples that have been in the news? I know, you know, when, when we talk about uh, forestry, for example, you've got the Ferry Creek protests that have been ongoing in BC for the last six months to a year. Hundreds of people arrested people traveling again from all over to join the protesters. The protesters are leaving garbage and abandoned cars and even cutting down trees to impede the RCMP, enforcing a court injunction. And the reality of that forestry development is that is all on the local Indigenous communities' land. 
They are partners in a growing ownership stake of that development, and they are 100% in support of that responsible, sustainable forestry development. And in fact, they've actually asked these protesters to leave and to respect their wishes. So there's a real disconnect here. They are saying yes, and yet these other people that are not directly involved or have any ownership or any stake whatsoever, really, are actually saying no. So that's an interesting one. It's not just oil and gas. It is also forestry. What can you tell us about some of those other situations, Lynn? Sure, Cody. So let's go to the, you know, Fair Creek as an example. Here again, what we're what we're referring to is the sovereignty, the autonomy of First Nations to use their resources. Let's keep in mind, first of all, that the majority of First Nations are in more remote and rural areas. And so what they have available to them are their resources. That is where their wealth lies. And so when they have an opportunity to, to do resource development, that is by far and away the best way for us to have Indigenous autonomy from economic perspective, which is really the pathway from poverty to prosperity for a lot of these places. So one of the things that, again, going back to UNDRIP, going back to the duty to consult, is that we need to respect the right of those First Nations to make their own decisions. And I think that core to almost every single um, Indigenous culture within Canada is environmental stewardship. You know, that is that is a core value for them more so than any other place. And so so that is always a consideration. These are not things that are undergone lightly. They undergo years and years of places. So let's go back to Ferry Creek. In the case of Ferry Creek, you have the elected and hereditary chiefs that are all in favor of doing their own management of their lands in terms of forestry management. And you have some dissent by a few members of their community, not hereditary chiefs, not elected chiefs, but there are members, as you would have in any space, that are dissenting. I think the more important question here is anti-development activists have long used the um, concept of some Indigenous being opposed to development as sort of as if they're synonymous, and they are not synonymous. You know, there's not a homogeneity to what's happening in First Nations. So with Ferry Creek, it's just a, a perfect example mm. of the fact that do you respect the right of Indigenous, whether it's for or against, because, you know, quotes on democracy, you're not a supporter of democracy if you only like it when the decision falls in your favor. That's mm. not a support for democracy, mm. right? Yes. So you have if you support Indigenous rights, you need to support it when those an Indigenous nations make an independent choice in favor or against. And if it goes against, then you need to support it. If it goes in favor, you need to support it. You don't get to choose depending on whether it aligns with you. Other examples, Cody, that you bring up, yes, it's not just forestry. Here's another example, again, of the complexity when you talk about Indigenous sovereignty, Indigenous rights. It's always mixed in, again, with natural resources because that's the source of their, that's the best source of income. So you mentioned the Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia. In that case, that was as a result of renegotiating some old treaties where they have the right to moderate livelihood. And so how do you define the right to moderate livelihood? And that's created a lot of confusion there in terms of, again, how much can they, in terms of commercial fishing, there's a lot of um, polarization there again. So these are not things that just happen in oil and gas and in energy. We're seeing it, as I said, in forestry. We're seeing it in fisheries. Uh, you see it in mining. Bathed in, land. In, yeah. yeah. There's it, lots of different. There's a lot of spaces. So all the time, it, it's it's not just as simple as, is the project a yes or a no? Mm -hmm. Does the First Nation favor it? it? It brings all these pieces together. 
Here's another case that you mentioned that just came up, and this is in Blueberry First Nation, North um, BC, Fort St. John area. Blueberry First Nation is very much involved in the resource development in their area, as one would expect. However, there was a recent case that came down that is now discussing the Crown's obligation to consider the cumulative effects of different projects. So on the one hand, this is great for First Nations to say that their rights need to be addressed, not just in a sort of piecemeal kind of way, but also holistically. So that's terrific. And I think we should approach all development that way. The concern at the same time, even by members of that same nation, is that the more complicated it gets to do business on First Nations land, the less likely they are to have these opportunities to develop their resources. And so this is sort of the, the catch-22. And that goes back to UNDRIP and everything else. And I think it's really one of the cruxes is that how do we make sure, you know, that in developing and, 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 and defending and really championing Indigenous rights on their, on their territories, that we're also not then creating so much red tape and so much confusion and so much court case lack of clarity that it actually goes to a point of perhaps even sterilizing their lands from being attractive for investors because of how long it takes to get a project off the ground. And so it's finding that balance that is really important. And making sure that when you have multiple pieces and layers of complex regulatory policy and and law and the evolution of some of these things, that the government is also capable of synthesizing that with the end result for working with the community, working with potential investors who are going to create jobs and economic opportunities, working with companies, working with the community for the balance of everyone involved. And, you know, I think with with Blueberry, as an example, maybe there's this thought that the government in uh, the local area hasn't been as on top of moving some of this forward and dealing with some of these issues to come to a the right, uh, you know, a, a, a happy result for everyone. So very complex. I, I wanted to say that, you know, I think we also need to remember that for Indigenous communities, that are supporting resource development. If we live in an urban center and we want to get a job at McDonald's and they're not hiring, well, we can just walk or catch a bus to Wendy's or A&W or Harvey's or Dairy Queen or you name it, right? Freshy or <laughs> Mucho Burrito or whatever. There's so many options. There's not the same level or options in a lot of these rural and remote communities. And so economic development and resource uh, development in these Indigenous communities, you know, there's a couple key important points about what are the ultimate goals, and that's reducing poverty, own source revenues from moving these communities in many regards from poverty to prosperity, advancing their own businesses, business procurement, employment success, training, getting more people in their local communities into different streams of of post-secondary education for future careers, women's rights on some of these Indigenous communities. And, you know, having these nations that have and communities that have entered into these partnerships, buying projects, financing developments, there's there's a lot of really great um, examples that we can continue to build upon. I, I wanted to also mention that Indigenous-owned businesses are 40 times more likely to be engaged in resource development than the median Canadian business. And this figure highlights how crucially important and mutually beneficial the relationship is often uh, between uh, these communities and resource development. 
So Lynn, I guess just in wrapping up, there, there's lots of opportunities. There's some challenges. How can our listeners participate in this conversation, learn more? Where would you, where would you recommend our listeners go to learn more on the subject? Well, I think it's a matter of just being aware and always considering that there are, like in any community, there are people that are going to be for and against any resource project. And I think the most important thing is just to recognize that our Indigenous uh, groups are not, are not homogenous. They're going to be different. But specifically to the resource development, I would say that Indigenous Resource Network is one of the places that you should start and take a look and follow. So Indigenous Resource Network was developed by a group of, um, in some cases, entrepreneurs in Indigenous or sometimes, you know, just uh, on tool in the field workers. And so they just wanted to make sure that there was a balance to the narrative of what's going on. And so their their um, belief, their mandate is to say, we support industry when, indig- when industry supports us mm-hmm. and recognizing the importance of that. So for anyone who's interested, I would say to go to Indigenous resourcenetwork.ca and follow them on Twitter and kind of do some support. They've really been headlining a lot of these different and highlighting some of these issues and and taking a lead and ensuring that these things are found in balance. So I would say to to take a look at IRN for sure. There's several other organizations, First Nations Major Projects Coalition, specific to some of the larger groups. There's a lot of different places you could do, and you could go to Indigenous Resource Network to find out more. That's fantastic, Lynn. And just in closing today, I'd like to just really repeat that certainly as a country, we've got a, a long history of a lot of flawed and, you know, some negative so real negative things that have happened and we need to continue working towards reconciliation and uh, healing and, and educating all Canadians about what's happened and how we can move forward for the future. And uh, certainly for economic sovereignty and own source revenues and moving from poverty to prosperity, some of these conversations about resource development are absolutely critical to uh, some of those discussions moving forward. So. Uh, Great conversation today, Lynn, and uh, thanks uh, to all of our listeners for tuning in. Thanks, Cody.